everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Wong Twos podcast. I'm Mike Vorkanoff, the guy who says hi and bye at the beginning of every episode. I cover the Knicks for The Athletic, and this week I thought I would ask uh, my friend and Yankees beat writer Lindsay Adler to come join me and uh, really just answer a pressing question that I haven't quite understood up until this moment. So, uh, Lindsay, thank you for, for joining me, first of all. Yeah, thank you for having me. How was that for a hackneyed podcast host intro? It was, it was polished, I would say. Okay, cool. I know we always have to go through the pleasantries whenever you start a podcast. You can't just be like, hey, sup? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so look, I, I want to have you on because um, you really seem to be interested in the Knicks. Um, and I was kind of wondering why. Uh, you know, they haven't been very good. You're not a, a native New Yorker. You are from the Bay Area. Um, and uh, yeah, you seem to tweet about them a good amount. And I, I mean, we've joked kind of uh, on Slack that you want to cover them from time to time in your all the free time you have in the Yankees uh, offseason, which I guess is a lot since no one like does anything in the offseason anymore. Like, what's up with this Knicks infatuation you have? So it's a few different things. Um, let me be clear. I don't watch the Knicks. Um, there's... So my relationship to basketball is um, I grew up mostly with my family, you know, being baseball and football fans. Um, now, when I go home for the holidays, all of my extended family, they're all wearing Warriors jerseys and whatnot. It's um, in the last 10 years, we've very much become a basketball family for obvious reasons. Um, so I don't know anything about basketball and I really prefer it that way. I <laughs> was living in San Francisco when, you know, when Steph Curry was drafted and when the Warriors began to be on the rise. And I had a lot of friends who said, you know, you should really watch this team. Um, a lot of my friends were sort of basing their social lives around watching the Warriors and they're just a, they were and are to an extent, just a super watchable team for someone who doesn't understand the game. It's, it's easy enough to sit there and watch Steph and Clay take three pointers. And yeah. what I really enjoy about not knowing anything about basketball is that I don't have any opinions on it. Um, I know so much about baseball and I'm sure you feel this way about basketball that it. No, I don't. A lot of, <laughs> it, it strips a lot of the fun of it. And so I enjoy, I enjoy my position as a, as a bandwagon Warriors fan and a sort of broadly curious NBA fan. And so I moved to New York about seven years ago. I have a bunch of friends who are Knicks fans um, being now immersed in the New York sports world, which I never anticipated that I would be covering the New York Yankees. Um, I obviously am connected with a lot of Knicks fans. So in a sense, I can't avoid people talking about the Knicks. And I, I feel for Knicks fans. I think that in some ways, um, Knicks, Mets, Jets fans are extremely courageous. Um, they, they subject themselves to some sort of like psychological warfare every season. Um, hopefully things will improve for for the Mets now um but really 
how I engage with the Knicks basically is that I read your work. I, it's one of those things where I don't really watch them play, but I enjoy reading about them. I'm the same way with um, Arsenal in the Premier League. I, I don't watch soccer, but I You're an love... Arsenal fan? Why no, I'm not, have... an, I'm not an Arsenal fan. You're, you're an it's... Arsenal voyeur? Uh... Yes, okay. I'm an Arsenal I'll... voyeur. <laughs> So that, yes, that's that's what it is. I am I'm an Arsenal voyeur. I am a Knicks voyeur. Um, I enjoy I enjoy reading about the Knicks also just because I like your work and I use it to sort of help um, guide my own um, I guess creative writing process. Um, so if somebody asked me about the Knicks, I wouldn't really know anything other than what I have read from you and that is a very freeing feeling in some ways for me <laughs> it's I, it's curious that you make this kind of um that this this I don't know this entry into Nick's um I don't know uh, observation I guess um mm -hmm. having coming from like the warrior's perspective of things like because those seem to be two completely <laughs> opposite ends of the basketball spectrum yes it's it's something that I've really wondered about for a long time, or I mean, for a number of years. I really enjoy watching the Warriors, but do I actually enjoy watching other basketball? Um, it's very easy to enjoy watching Steph drain a half court shot. Um, will I ever get to a point where I sort of like willingly turn on a Pistons jazz game? Um, probably not. And I, I did sort of get my answer last year when, when um, Steph had his hand injury and it was like, well, I'm not going to stay up until 1 a.m. watching this unenjoyable team. Um, I guess I do sort of, the Warriors are sort of like a, a bonus boost to my mood um, just because they're so fun. But then I think, the rest of my interest in basketball is like sort of academic um, and not from an X's and O's standpoint. I just think the NBA gives a casual observer like me so many things to engage with that are not things about understanding the triangle. Um, no one understands the triangle. Yeah. Well, great. Then every, then I'm glad to be in, in that club. Like um, we we've been through like that was the entire Phil Jackson era was like Phil Jackson saying the triangle is the greatest thing ever and everyone's like what are you talking about man like you know I don't I don't get it yeah I think I think that is part of my confusion is that you know you see the word triangle enough and I sort of tried to understand it but then I wound up seeing like poor execution and so it didn't really help my comprehension um, but it's like I'm really interested in the Nets because I love watching KD. I love watching Kyrie. Um, I am fascinated to see which way it goes. It feels very much like the um, the New York Times election needle. It could either uh, <laughs> swing very quickly toward uh, greatness or it could swing very quickly to me and a lot of other people in the tri-state area pulling out their hair. Um, I also have to give a shout out to my friend, Becca Laurie, who is a huge basketball fan. And Becca's um, great, yeah. Yeah, she 
she sends me the good drama. She explains the, uh, she explains the context for things that I need. And uh, she, she doesn't care that I enjoy being a basketball dumbass, despite it being one of her biggest passions. So but, but like bas- to Becca. <laughs> basketball is accessible that way. Right. Cause it's not like everything that pulls people in. I, I like the actual sport of basketball and I did before covering the NBA. Um, mm-hmm. But like, I think, feel like a lot of the stuff that pulls people in is kind of like the high school drama aspect of it um it's kind of like a netflix series that just keeps going and going Mm -hmm. and whereas like baseball i used to cover baseball i covered the mets for a few years and then i did like one year freelancing and stuff and baseball you just you lose the threat very quickly um Mm -hmm. it's not a linear sport in terms of like narrative it just kind of stops and starts and, uh, and all that type of stuff. Um, basketball, like you don't need to watch a single game to know what's going on and what's important at the moment. And that really mm-hmm. is like a thing that they've mastered and just turn it's wrestling to some degree. It's like, uh, you know, we're all marks. The actual results don't matter. We're just here for the storylines <laughs> and know who the heels and the faces are. Yeah. I mean, I guess the NBA should know that I tweet about the Knicks and the Nets without watching their games. Um, I guess I think that's the problem they're trying to solve actually okay that might be a problem or it might be an endorsement Um, to be clear I don't watch the Nets because I don't have cable and I can't watch Yes Network on any other uh, streaming programs and I don't need it for baseball but I think I mean I do think that's just really a big part of it. You just don't see these types of personalities in baseball very often. And the way that, uh, the way that personality driven narratives get handled in baseball, it's just so different. And so part of the reason why, yeah, I get sort of fascinated by the idea of, you know, doing a Nick story in the off season, or uh, if this had been a normal off season, I would love to go, you know, spend a couple days in the Nets uh, locker room. Yeah. It's, it feels accessible because, because there are people who have, who are okay with showing that they're interesting. There are people who have things to say. I understand that like from a media perspective, the, the KD Kyrie Harden is basically um, a death sentence. <laughs> um, I'm not saying that I, but I think that I could stroll in there and just and just crack the code. But you just put our, our guy Alex Schiffer on like media death row for covering know, this team, apparently. Um, I mean, look, it's in my opinion, he has a great assignment. Um, there's there's going to be something to say either way. And I think you know that really as a as a beat reporter, that's just the most important thing. It's as long as they don't, as long as they sort of avoid the middle ground. And so I think with the way that I write about baseball, I feel I feel an obligation to sort of translate the sport as it's rapidly changing um, for for a readership, whereas I feel that I could possibly, you know, just write about a, a player and sort of like how they view the world in the NBA. So, um, and I don't know, part of it is also just that like I sit around in the off season <laughs> doing nothing um, and, and they're, and they're right there. And so that's also a big part of it. Let's be real. Have you been to the garden or to, to Barclays? I have. 
Um, I've been to the garden a few times. Um, Barclays as well. Um, I can't remember the last game I went to at Barclays. I think I think I went to a game with Becca when LeBron had just gone back to the Cavs or something like that. Um, yeah. Just you know the 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 upper tier of seats just spending the whole time terrified that I was just going to like tip over and tumble to my death because it is so steep up there. Um, uh, yeah, but it, if, if this were a normal time, yeah, I would probably be seeing if our editors and, and Alex were okay with me maybe getting credentialed or I would, you know, I live within walking distance. Now I would, I would be going to games at Barclays for sure. I, I mean, could. you can still write about the Knicks anytime you want. I will happily cede my place and just go write about like track and field or something. Yeah. Part of the problem was that uh, the Yankees were very boring this off season. And so I sort of felt that I should um, maybe do one good Yankee story before hopping onto someone else's beat. <laughs> um, and then that just sort of dragged out for like three months. Um, but next off season, Next off season, you know, kick me some stories and I will um, maybe, maybe make my next debut. I would, I would still love that for sure. I mean, comparing baseball to a Marina Abramovich installation is not <laughs> good for you. Uh, like I, <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple people texted me to ask if I was completely losing it and yeah, they, yeah. I mean, it, the context here is that, the Yankees were sort of in a, I guess, a stalemate with DJ LeMahieu for a while. And I had really run out of ways to write about the fact that they wanted to re-sign DJ LeMahieu. It was their priority, but it hadn't been done yet. And so I was sitting there at about, I don't know, 11.30 p.m. Um, after spending all day not working on a story that I could have filed by like 3 p.m., Um, if I had had the initiative and I was just thinking about how they were sort of staring off. And so it made me think about, uh, you know, a piece of performance art, uh, called the artist is present where, yeah, where she just sat and stared at people. And so I was like, I, I have this sort of, uh, this is really embarrassing. I can't believe I I'm admitting this, but I have this sort of bad habit of when I can't figure out what to write, I just write something that I find funny. Um, I like call it fake leads or or fake paragraphs, just like things where I'm like, man, this is just totally off the rails and I wish that I could file it. And, you know, sometimes I like send it to people uh, being like, LOL, look at how stupid I am. And then a few choice enablers are like, file it. And our editor, Rachel, is very... Um, open-minded and wonderful and so if I decide to actually go with my fake lead about performance art she will apparently wake up in the morning and and run it and just uh, be amused by it as well so really revealing way too much about the uh listen (laughs) about the creative process here I I think you should run with it I devote uh, a story each year talking about the next draft uh, in the context of an episode of community. So I'm hmm. all for the weird and, and silly. 
um, where, you know, as much as professional sports is a, is a job uh, to a lot of people, including to us, uh, it's also a sport. And mm-hmm. so we should, you know, treat it as such. Like, why not? Let's go wild. Yeah, I really got to, I've been trying to watch community because I know it will be oh, a nice way so to pass good. the time, but my attention span is really screwed up right now. So yeah, um, I want to save it for when I feel like I can actually sit down and watch things for more than 10 minutes at a time. <laughs> I've been rewatching it and I think it holds up really well. Um, yeah. Uh, up until that, like midway through season five when it just gets a little weird. Yeah. That's the thing. I've, I've been told it's enjoyable. It's rewatchable and um, there's a lot of episodes of it. So it's like exactly what I need. But yeah. now that I know that you um, do a Nick's draft story on it, that will that will help me. And then I will understand that more, I think. <laughs> Maybe. I, <laughs> it's uh it's it's one of my favorites. It's about uh, the different timeline. It's the timeline episode. You'll when you watch it, you'll eventually understand what I'm talking about. And uh, I think you'll you'll like the show. Um I do I do want to ask because you mentioned kind of baseball and you know, I like I said, I covered the Mets for two years. They went to the World Series, it was really fun um to cover baseball. And I like baseball and like I, I've actually it's weird. Like after covering baseball for a while, I, I think I throw too many stats into stories. Cause that was a thing. Cause you can use numbers really mm-hmm. well to explain baseball. It's, it's really a technical sport. Um, yes. it's, it's like, you know, I know everyone talks about kind of like the, the hedge fundification, the private equity, uh, influence on the sport. But I think it's come to that almost in the way that people write about it too. You really need numbers a lot to explain what's going on mm-hmm. instead of writing about people. Um, and that was something that Mark Craig always kind of said, it was just like write around, write about people. And when you get too dogged, uh, bogged down and I, I write about numbers too much. And I think I do that with basketball. And I think like basketball really is just so much of more of a personal sport. And it's funny. Mm-hmm. You mentioned art. Like, I think almost sometimes you have to talk about basketball. Like you're, a, you're a critic, like you're a theater yes. critic or an art critic, because so much of it is performance art. Um, you know, yes. like I, people, would, I think the criticism of political writing was that like, you know, we treat politics too much like art sometimes, like we critique it, the theater of it, the the storylines instead of like, you know, writing about the fact that policies can help and hurt people. Um, yes. Basketball seems like an appropriate place to talk about as performance <laughs> art. <laughs> like, yes. Whether the Knicks win or lose games, you know, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, it's going to take $2,000 off of someone's uh, income that year. Yeah, I'm uh there's some there's some there's some elected officials who owe me some freaking money. That's that's all I have to say about that. Um but yeah, I mean I think all it's, your congress people and your senators, especially if you're in West Virginia. Seriously. Yeah, I have a friend who um ugh, lives in Paris and writes about soccer. Um well Jealous? European right. sports. I know. Um and so we've talked about sort of the advancements in I guess, quantifying the game um, and statistics and and things like that. And I just think it's different in things like soccer or basketball where things just happen. Um, Baseball is just so much more controlled that it's easy to quantify it. Um, There that's, that is really part of what I enjoy about watching basketball um, is that there's just parts of it where it's like, I don't even know how you could uh, assign a metric to that, which 
to some extent, um, spending every day immersed in the baseball world, um, the idea of a, sp a sport where performance is harder to measure is uh, kind of appealing. Not going to lie. <laughs> I like it. but I, I like that. Um, the subtlety of it, the ignorance of it to some degree. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I, I think, uh, I don't know. There's something freeing about that. It also makes you feel, um, as I do, like kind of dumb about it. Right. Like there's so many people on Twitter who like watch all the basketball games. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm just like flabbergasted. I don't know how they find the time. Like they're like tweeting out clips from like every game and like they have, con they have opinions on like the backup center on the Sacramento Kings. And I'm just trying to still wrap my head around about like, is Emmanuel quickly good? Um, yes. So like, I'm like, but it, because of that, it like, because there's this kind of vacuum about, uh, how, you know who exactly is good and how good they are i think it sometimes it feels um oh sometimes it, it feels scary going out on a ledge and saying mm -hmm. something maybe doesn't fit in with the group think uh, whereas in baseball it seems like there's kind of an agreement of who's good and who's got who's not and really the the bigger question is about can you correctly prognosticate whether they'll be good in the future based on like these underlying stats that they have whether then are they good right now because there are a lot of good stats to tell you they are they aren't yeah, I mean, yes, but I think that's dangerous. Um, when I first started covering baseball, um, a lot of my a lot of my baseball writer friends, uh, you know, are the people who run fan graphs and baseball prospectus. Um, I have access to talking with some of the, you know, brightest public facing people who approach baseball analytically. Um, but I think I really used it as a crutch. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to be covering. The first year on your baseball beat is hard. Yeah. And so knowing how to use, you know, the stat cast search or being able to talk to a friend about catcher defensive statistics or whatever, it made it so that, I kind of could write about it because players didn't know me. They didn't trust me. I really didn't necessarily know how to interview them. Um, and so in a way it was, it was, it was an entry point for me, but I really try now to sort of think more about how much I lean on statistics as a crutch. Um, I think I spend so much time watching baseball that I can now see when I look at statistics. Um, and it's important to me to assess whether or not they match what I am seeing on the field. Because I think there's a big issue with people who look at the you know, numbers we use to, to quantify performance and assert that that is the, that that is the measure of a player. Um, like for example, current defensive statistics do not like Didi Gregorius as a shortstop. Um, I could get into a lot of things about what we know about defensive statistics, even using, um, you know, radar tracking from StatCast, but 
the important thing is that Yankees fans enjoyed watching him play. Um, he may not have been statistically perfect, but they enjoyed watching him as a shortstop. I don't know if, and please nobody like send the FBI to my house for saying this, but like, I don't know if it was like sort of a, a relief after watching Derek Jeter, especially in his declining years. Um, uh-huh. And Didi Gregorius just looked better by, uh, by comparison or whatever, but like, it really, I really have to think about like, what, what is the value in saying like, no, actually these statistics that are changing all the time are known to be fallible. Like, no, they don't actually like Didi. Um, and I had a conversation with Bill James last week because he is, he is sort of looking at the sport and his influence over it um, as, as a runaway train. He really advocated for the advancement of statistics and sabermetrics. And now it has been taken to such an extreme degree that I don't think he knows how to really process this. Um, You know, when he was, when he was advocating that, you know, runs batted in was not the best mark of, of run production in in the early eighties. I don't, I don't think he ever envisioned the way that the Tampa Bay Rays would operate. And so he gets really frustrated when players or writers say things like, you know, um, RBIs don't, uh, you know, batting average doesn't matter. He also gets frustrated when um, a player's overall production is reduced to wins above replacement. Yeah. I think, you know, it's his own freaking statistic and I think he hates it now um, because it's, it's not a perfect statistic. Yeah. It's, and I think that frustrates him. I think he wanted something like wins above replacement to be a tool to help contextualize a lot of the um, results-based things that we see on the field, like batting average on base uh, percentage and whatnot. And I do think things like wins above replacement, it just, it's, it's a crutch. It's a shorthand. It's really hard to evaluate um, how good a baseball player actually is. And so it is nice to have something that wraps up, you know, offense and defense in a, in a, in a tidy package and tells you this guy was better than this guy. And you look at the leaderboards at the end of the season and it's, you know, Mike Trout and Mookie Betts. And so it, it makes sense. Um, But these are also people and there are a lot of ways in which it is just impossible to quantify the sport, no matter how much, um, how much we want and, and try to do it. And that's really been a big shift for me since starting to cover baseball is actually um, being, being less impressed by advanced statistics, I think. Yeah. I, and I think that's, I mean, I totally agree with you. And, and like, I, I remember I had this <clears throat> conversation once with a, with a Mets executive. This is, so this would be like six years ago now um, about robot umps mm-hmm. uh, of all things. And he was like all for robot umps, because <laughs> if you have robot umps, you have kind of clear cut 
right and wrong foul and I mean strike and uh, and ball calls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have exactitude on safe and out plays. You have certainty about results. Yes. And I was like, I get it from your perspective. Um, wins and losses matter to you. And so <laughs> making sure you get properly credited with wins and losses is literally uh, your job, your employment, mm-hmm. and your financial outcome. Uh, I want you to feed your family. And yep. uh, But for me, as a person who likes baseball and wants to watch baseball and um, – you know, writes about it occasionally. I like error. I want, I sports to me is theater. It is <laughs> entertainment, even if I do cover it. And so like, I want people to be wrong. I think it's great for baseball when they spend the day after a big world series game arguing about like, <laughs> did the ump uh, down the right field line mess up that call? And yeah. should like the twins have actually beaten the Yankees? So I think with that game, that would have been the left field line, if I remember right. Um, like, I think that's great. And I understand why if maybe you're the Twins general manager, you're super pissed off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's good for the sport. And I think like anything that completely like vacuums out air is not good for whatever the sport is. And uh, like being able to say with certainty about this or that player and how good they are. I don't know. I, I think I think people need conflict and sometimes conflict is just being able to disagree about how good someone is and having that discussion and not being able to point uh, to one statistic or another. And and that goes for basketball as well too. Right. And, you know, everyone is trying to kind of find catch all stats to point to, to explain how good a basketball player is as well. And like, we have people that are amazing um, in terms of like writing about analytics and uh, like set part now for us for basketball. And sometimes it's just like, it, it goes over my head a little bit and I try to understand it more because it's part of my job. And I, definitely think that there's a value and a need for analytics in all sports. Like don't put me in, in one end of that debate, but I know I just like, I like people, I like people messing up. I like people being wrong. I like people knowing, like not knowing what to think sometimes and us arguing for so long about it. Yeah. I think that's the, in baseball, I think that's the unfortunate impact of, of this or of, of, of the change in the way the industry function and, and something I don't know how to wrap my head around because while I'm maybe um, less into uh, arguing about blown calls than, than you are, I think. I'll I take think arguing about other things too. Yeah, I think I'm not, I'm not just for here for blown strike calls. Because a, a thing that is similar to that, a thing that is, um, a mistake, it can, it can cost outs, it can change the game, is, is a stolen base. And we know now um, how to quantify when it is a good time for someone to steal a base and when it is not. Um, we know, I mean, even just as a writer, I can go to StatCast website and see pop time. I can see how long it takes a catcher to throw to second base. I can look at a delivery and know when someone is slow to the plate. We can, you know, stat cast measures foot speed and what, what teams have behind the scenes is still so much more advanced than what we have. And so it's hard for me because it's like, it's similar to the robot um things. It's, it's making the game cleaner by not sending someone who might get thrown out stealing. And so I can't grudge a manager for 
for looking at the information, looking at the data and saying, this guy should not run on this pitcher um, because his job is to make the team win. His, his job is not to, you know, his, his job is not to let people or put people in a position where they can argue about whether or not someone was out at second or not. And so I can't say, you know, screw the information we have about stolen bases because at the end of the day, people are going to be happiest when their team wins the World Series, but also it just, the sort of cleanliness, I guess in, in a way, the quantification of baseball has sort of sanitized some of those exciting moments. You know, some of the, some of the best or some of the most exciting defensive plays or whatever that we still talk about are the results of mistakes. And I think with, I think with, you know, an automatic strike zone, I get really frustrated at this point. Like, I understand why fans really hate blown calls. Um, as a control freak hothead, I don't understand how pitchers and hitters do not go freaking nuclear every yeah. time. I think they probably just experience so many blown calls that they mostly know to keep it together other than Brett Gardner. Um, <laughs> but, but there are implications for an automatic zone as well. Um, what, what is, what is a strike? You know, people, people watch a strike zone on TV and see it as a, as a two-dimensional, um, rectangle. Not good that I don't know my basic shapes. Um, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's a 3D zone. Um, and so are people really going to be happy if one seam that nicks, you know, the, the true underside of the 3D zone for like one nanosecond? Are, are they going to be happy if that is called a strike? And how does how do we know that the technology is right for it? I think that will come in time, but I mean, baseball has had issues with their tracking systems. Um, you know, it's they have their tracking system set up sort of by the broadcast booths behind the plate. And it's like, okay, so if you have this sort of like big plate and the, like, I believe I've heard that like, you know, if, if there's an exciting play and everyone starts jumping and the, the park shakes a little bit, like surely the, the radar system is gonna shake a little bit. And, you know, there's a, there's a personal tracking system, Rapsodo, that is notoriously um, imprecise for pitches that go toward the bottom of the zone. So it's, it's great for a Garrett Cole, but doesn't really, um, it's not as great for like sinker guys. And so an automatic zone, I think is the future. And I think is the right move for baseball, but I don't think people realize that there are ways that they will be pissed off about that as well. And I think taking the time to make sure that some of those things are, are considered and, and mitigated is, is important because we can't demand perfection from human umpires. I mean, it's ridiculous that they even do their jobs to begin with. Um, yeah. You know, we, we remember the blown calls, but like when you look at the 
overall body of work, um, most umpires are freakishly accurate. Right. And so I can accept human error. Um, but if we're going to transition, probably the most important part of the game to something that is supposed to be precise, like I'm actually going to be way less forgiving of, of issues with that. You know, if it's, if we are, if we are striving for perfection, we need to make sure it is basically perfect. And so I think, I think, I think the sport is changing and advancing and I think that's great. Um, I just don't necessarily know that like all of the implications are, are always considered in this pursuit of sort of the uh, cleanest, cleanest, um, cleanest fraction practice of, of, of manufacturing runs. Well, they're not right. Like, I mean, you mentioned like your conversation with Bill James is like, this is the unintended, unintended consequence of what he started, you know, 45 years ago or whatever. Um, you know, 20 years ago, uh, Moneyball was just winning the A's some games. And, uh, now look at where we are. Right. Like, I feel like almost when deciding about any of these things, I don't know, baseball or basketball or anything should almost hire some ethicists and some philosophers <laughs> to try to think about the long-term effects of these things. There's a long tail to each of these decisions. If you're going to try to upend, um, you know, decades of tradition and all that, not to say that it shouldn't be upended sometimes like tradition is not something just to be, uh, you know, set in amber and kept the same way forever. Uh, things should change, but like, Think about what it might be five, 10, 15 years down the line too. Yeah, I think that's sort of um, a very, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a global thing, but um, to me, it sort of reads like a, a very American thing is that everything will be taken to its most extreme conclusion. You know, we, yeah. I see this a lot with the way people talk about like, Google and Facebook and technology. And I think, I think largely Google and Twitter. Um, I mean, Facebook was founded by a guy who wanted to rate how hot girls were at Harvard, you know, and now it's like basically like toppling democracies. Um, Jack Dorsey is just like this weird, um, I don't even know how to explain him. He's just, he's like, he's like burning man to the extreme. Yeah. And now they're leading debates about, um, you know, tech censor censorship and and the ethics around deplatforming people. And so I do sort of think about it when I see that stuff because it's a it's a really bright and much more um, <laughs> important form of, you know, a, a kernel of an idea that has really led to a lot of unintended consequences and. Uh, fortunately, baseball does not seem to be toppling democracies just yet. Um, but you know, I, Give it time. I yeah, I, I don't want to like underestimate it. Um, I don't, I don't want to insult it by saying that it won't have that power. But I feel like yeah. Andrew Friedman has a lot of plans. We don't know where he'll go next. Man, <laughs> what a the Dodgers to me are like the most interesting organization in all of sports. Um, 
maybe aside from like what man city was trying to do there. Um, but like the Dodgers is just like super fascinating to me in, in terms of like everything they're doing holistically as a franchise from top to bottom. Yes. And because baseball allows you to do that because you have, or I guess you used to have several minor league levels. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Now you have like 40 guys in whatever the triple a town is. And they call that the minor leagues. Um, but I guess like that leads to my, my bigger question, which is like, why do baseball teams hate good players? Like, I don't get it. Like who? Yeah. Like, like which good players do they hate? I mean, like, I don't know. Nolan Arenado, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) Lindor, Mookie Betts. Um, I'm very much confused by this, like devotion to trading away your good players because in basketball, uh, teams are trying to move heaven and earth to get the good players. They try, they move heaven and earth to get the Drew Holidays, um, like let alone, you know, James Harden. Uh, but in baseball, they're like, here, we'll pay you to take the guy who's like one of the best third baseman of all time. Like, please go. It, it makes me freaking sick, honestly. It, the, like when I was at Deadspin, if I remember correctly, the, uh, the, the sort of staff-wide take was that Rockies fans are the best fan base in baseball because they're like, I mean, this sounds like a stereotype, but they're like pretty chill. Um, they care about the team and whatnot. And they, Rockies fans deserve good things. And I've now covered DJ LeMahieu for two years and the Rockies, the Rockies had a plan for moving on from DJ LeMahieu. And then the plan went to shit and they look like idiots. Um, they promised Arenado that they were going to try. And I think, you know, our colleague Nick Groke made an interesting point in a piece he wrote about this, that the Rockies can say that they are financially hindered um, by the pandemic or being a smaller market or blah, blah, blah. But he noted that they have committed like more than $200 million to free agents who didn't pan out. And the idea of signing Nolan Arenado. And, and I think the important thing to know is that like a lot of these players really want to win where they are. Um, we'll be talking about whether or not Nolan Arenado opts out to try to go to the Dodgers. Sure. But especially with the, with the first organization, if they spend a lot of time there, like they're, they're committed to it. They, they want to feel like they have completed something there. And so to tell Nolan, we are committing to you. We, you know, we know that we <laughs> screwed things up with Troy Tulowitzki. We screwed things up with DJ LeMayhew, but like we are going to win and you are going to be here for it. And then betray him in that way um, for a number of different reasons. It just, it's hard. It's it's hard because the fans want to watch Nolan Arenado. They want to watch DJ LeMahieu. And and the players want to win for those fan bases. And so it's like it is just such a fear of it's like it's like risk assessment. You know, like if if the Cleveland Indians don't feel that they're necessarily going to win the World Series this year, why not just trade Lindor when, when he has a really high value? And so you, you say like, okay, we're going to keep trying to win a world series, but then 
Francisco Lindor is playing in freaking Queens, New York. Um, I watched the San Francisco Giants win the World Series in 2010, 2012, 2014. Um, I watched the Kansas City Royals win the World Series in 2015. So I firmly have a belief that you don't have to have a Dodgers or Yankees level super team to win their World Series. Once once you get into October, um, everything is on the table. And yes, we can sort of project how things will play out, but you just don't know. And so I don't grudge a general manager necessarily for trading Lindor, knowing that you're not going to be able to keep him. Um, but just systemically, it, it sucks. It sucks. Like I have, you know, in the season, I have a bunch of Rockies fans tweeting at me all the time because the Yankees have DJ LeMahieu, um, former Rockies farmhand, Mike Talkman had a nice season in 2019. They had Adam Adovino. And so it was like these passionate fans read Yankees coverage because they cared about the players and they wanted to follow them. And it's just, uh, what, what is this for? Is this, is this an exercise to feel like, to feel like you have the, like, like you are, it, it, it's so process oriented that there are people sitting at home thinking, I care about this team. I give this team this money and trading Nolan Arenado and freaking paying the St. Louis Cardinals to take him is such a betrayal, I think. And I don't know what the solution is. It's, it's another thing where it's like, I can't, what are they going to do? Not move him, but it's ugly. And it's ugly and it's just frustrating to watch. So I, I don't know why teams hate good players. They talk about money. They talk about windows of contention. They talk about things like that. But <laughs> at the end of the day, um, you have Francisco Lindor, you have Mookie Betts, you have Nolan Arenado. Do something with it. Right. Um, Ooh, you got me way too worked up. I, th- I think <laughs> I blacked out, honestly. <laughs> Just a fit of rage. We're, we're going to take <sighs> a break as you calm down. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree with all that. And I think that's, I mean, I think that becomes an existential problem for baseball too, as much as, you know, I, I think there's a legitimate question to be had about the NBA and how players wield their power. I think it's mm-hmm. great that there's, uh, you know, the player empowerment movement as everyone calls it. Um, but there's also a question of when it goes too far, you know, jo- James Harden kind of going on this tour <laughs> of, uh, Atlanta and Houston and like trying to get himself like apparently just ineligible for contact tracing protocols. Um, it's probably not great with two years left on your contract. Like that seems like a step too far. Um, but I also think it's bad for baseball. If teams are just like, uh, you know, this guy's getting too expensive and we don't want to spend the money. And maybe, you know, like this isn't our, this is the end of our cycle. And so just trade everyone away. Even if the guy wants to stay, like, why would you be a fan of a team anymore? You know, there's so many people who are just, especially basketball fans who are fans of players more so than teams. Like, Yes. Baseball is disincentivizing them from being fans of like 15 teams. Then if they feel like they can't keep the very best players in the sport, because it's just not the right time or they are, 
you know, so they say unable to pay them. Yeah, it's, it's something that's hard for me to understand with the NBA versus baseball, because the, I mean, it, it's technically a salary cap in the NBA, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a tax, there's a cap, and then there's a luxury tax. And then at okay. some point, you can get hard cap through some certain machinations. Yeah, so it's like, it's, teams do have a different barrier there um, with the with the way that they can form their teams and the whole idea of like super max contracts are sort of um, bizarre to me but to some <laughs> extent I think it I mean I am I am against a salary cap in baseball I am pro salary floor but um, in some ways I think maybe the basketball situation makes some sense um, but the basketball situation too is much more punitive. I think Tim, um, you know, like the, the, like you get, I think the nets one year under Mikhail Prokhorov, I think paid like over a hundred million dollars in tax. Um, like what what, Kelly Oubre, uh, you, you can tell me the exact number is like worth $80 million basically when they, when the Warriors acquired him this year, just because of all the tax they'd be paying, um, because the multiplier of the luxury tax, you know, like, what what were like baseball teams going to pay if they go over that was 192 million 250 million? I don't know wherever the number is but like yeah. it seems like there's a lot more incentive in baseball to go over that and teams just seem frightened like they are scared yes. to like to go over this semi permeable tax number and there's not really to me any good reason not to if your main goal is winning baseball games as much as you can and winning as many championships as you can unless there's some kind of collective uh decision making amongst owners to just say nah we're we're doing this as a mom and pop organization in a 10 billion dollar uh sport uh we're just you know we we got to balance our budget and uh you know we can't we can't spend more than this number yeah, that's baseball owners so, got to read modern monetary theory. They got to read about that and apply it to the sport. I there's a lot of different theories that I would like to introduce to baseball, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, like the the way the luxury tax is structured now is basically um, a direct reaction to the Dodgers spending a bunch of money to win. Um, I honestly don't even think that like the big teams would spend money in that way to win anymore because they think about surplus value and things like that. And Um, the Dodgers didn't win, by the way, they didn't win. They didn't win. They paid like $300 million in payroll. um, I mean, it probably should be noted that if you're doing this in fear of this team doing something to win and they don't win, maybe that like, kind of it i don't know shows the limitations of this like fear-based rule setting right and like so it's theoretically supposed to help the tampa bay rays the cleveland indians the colorado rockies of the world um the oakland a's of the world um but it really hasn't changed the way that those teams operate it has just changed the way that the big market teams operate it's the the competitive balance tax in baseball is basically its primary purpose is suppressing player salaries. Um, right now it's for this year, it's 210 million, which 
look, it, it, it's a lot of money, but I think, and, and the way it works is that like it, it escalates, you know, the, the first year, I think you pay like 10%, 20, blah, 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 blah. So the Yankees are very clearly trying to get back under the tax threshold for this year to, to reset the penalties. But I think what's, I think something that people don't necessarily think about is I don't believe that it is like 20% on the entire payroll. If I remember correctly, and I have a hard time with this stuff. So if I'm wrong, please don't call me stupid. I am, uh, I am giving a warning, but I believe that it's 20% on the amount of money that you pay over the threshold. So if the Yankees spend 210 million, it would be X percentage of, of 10 million. And so it's, it's, it, it, I understand how if they feel that they can win with a $209 million payroll instead of a $211 million payroll, it, it makes sense to do it. But it's, it, it was a really big loss for, for the union. It's, it's something that is really going to basically tear the upcoming CBA negotiations apart. And it should, it should. I, it, is, it is very hard for me to write about the New York Yankees and you know, walk around the like, they don't want to cross this threshold when fans, fans don't care about how much Hal Steinbrenner pays in, in tax um, going over the payroll. They, they <laughs> care about winning and they don't. And so it's, and I, I think having George Steinbrenner as an owner has actually really conditioned the Yankees fan base to be sort of um, pro player compensation because they're just like, I don't care. Just pay him. You know, like you have the money, just pay him. But it's like, how do I, how do I handle that? How do I say, you know, if, if the Yankees want to bring back Brett Gardner, they will probably have to move payroll to stay under the tax. Um, it doesn't mean that I have an opinion or agree on the, on the subject. And I, it certainly doesn't mean that fans have to like it, but it is the reality. And that, that becomes a really hard thing because I have to say that like, this is clearly what they are doing, but if you are a fan, you don't, you don't have to like it. And it, it's um, sort of like a semantics limbo at time to say like, this is the reality and you are free to disagree and send <laughs> as many angry tweets about it. But I am just telling you, this is how the roster is clearly getting constructed. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I don't feel like that's a fun conversation to have. Like it used to be no, like, it's not. <laughs> you, you, it's, it used to be, I think maybe teams and players were having the same conversation about their, uh, sorry, teams and fans were having the execs and fans. There we go. That's right. Execs and fans were having the same conversation about their teams, which is does this move or could this move make the team better? Right mm -hmm. now it's like fans are want to have the, like, could this move make us better conversation and execs are having like, is this enough surplus value? Will we go over the tax? And like, I don't know when you're having two different conversations, I don't, that, that's not good probably like about enjoying the sport, whichever sport it is. That's a really good way to put it. Um, it is two different conversations. Yeah. Oh, well maybe ba baseball figure, figure it out. I mean, I think, I think a lot of fans are going to learn a lot about labor <laughs> 
uh, in the upcoming months and years, I think um, really interested to see how how those discussions for the CBA go, how how the coverage goes, and sort of where fans lie on it. But um, look, like Amazon has there's like a warehouse, an Amazon warehouse, and I think Alabama that is trying to unionize, which would basically change the entire like landscape for whether or not Amazon employees can form unions. And so, um, hey man, I, I, I think <laughs> we are getting to a point where we are actually going to really be talking about labor in this country and um, congrats for doing that in baseball too. <laughs> but sports, yeah, sports has always been a proxy for other, for conversations in society that we should be having, right? And not and sometimes haven't been it. willing to have. That is what I love about it and also what I hate about it. <laughs> I just want to watch a game and not think about life. I do really sometimes just want to stick to sports. Um, Can we say that? Are you allowed to say that? Like you, me, like, is anyone allowed to say that anymore that you just sometimes want to watch a game? Like that seems I mean, like almost heresy. And, and I don't, the, I'm not even saying that facetiously. Yeah. Like to bring it full circle, like that's basically what I get to do with basketball. Like I, I, follow a lot of Warriors fans. I, I know that there are issues and frustrations with the organization, but like, it's all over my head. Um, but yeah, like I, there are a lot of times where like, I would really just love to stick to sports, but it's sports are, I don't like saying that they're a microcosm of society because it makes it seem like they're like sports is like a separate community. Um, yeah. Sports is sports is a a place where the you know the the fabric of our society that affects all of us in our normal lives is obviously still going to play out there. Um, these are these are people who do sort of live in a fantasy world making 35 million dollars a year or whatever, but they also live in the real world. So it's um it's good and it's bad, I guess. Who's your favorite Nick that you've never watched play basketball? Uh, can I go with Shump? Yeah. Why Shump? I mean, um, just because he's like sort of like chaos. Um, like, it just seems like watching him get those, like the times when I've like watched him get those shots off, I'm like, what is going to, it's, I like the, mm, I may sound like a complete idiot here, but I think I've said like 15 times that I don't know anything, but like, it just feels a little bit like um, chaos is a playing style. I guess J.R. Smith actually is probably my favorite former Nick, if we're really getting into chaos personified. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I love the JR show. Um, obviously not, um, a career long Nick, but yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess that is the thing. I, I like the characters. I, I am sad to an extent that, you know, Mello didn't have more success in New York. I'm, I'm sad that it, it, it's basically like the Arenado thing like it's it's sad to see someone who committed to a team that was um unsuccessful not actually find that success there I 
I don't like that. But um, yeah, the 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 J.R. Smith uh, uh, chaos program is is fun for me to watch. I'm sorry to Knicks fans. <laughs> I wish I got to cover him. Um, he seems like a, a fun guy to cover, I guess. Um, yeah, he's got a personality. He's he's got he's got stuff. <laughs> he's got chutzpah. Yes, he does. Uh, I I do. Um, I wonder if we'll all enjoy sports a little more once we can all go to games again, um, and just like when it returns to, if and when it returns to normalcy, if that will kind of change our our uh, the way that we appreciate and take in sports, if we can start going to events and attending them, and you you have like you know twenty thousand people in MSG or you have uh, fifty thousand people at Yankee Stadium. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I had the rare privilege of actually attending games in person this year. You know, it's like something that was really meaningful to me. You know, only probably a few thousand people who weren't playing were able to attend games and I don't know, a few hundred media members. So I understand that um, it was really a luxury. And so I will use that experience to say that, like, guess what? going to the games does feel good. Um, it is nice. It does. It was, you know, three hours where I was just thinking about baseball. It was very mentally freeing. And yes, the experience of watching it in person was just so massively different from watching it at home, even if it wasn't normal, even if it was sort of sad. Um, if, if, if you are wondering if you will still be able to enjoy sports after all of this is said and done, um, I think there's, I would say that that is, is very likely. Yes. That's actually really nice. I've, I've been wondering lately about whether I can like live life again, pre pandemic yeah. life and like to hear that, okay, you can at least enjoy sports in the same way they used to. Um, is nice. That's heartening. Like that's a legitimate conversation I've, I've been having with myself was we even, even when we all hopefully get vaccinated soon and we don't have to live um, in the way that we are now, like, will it feel the same? Yeah. I mean, look like um, think about like in early January when they, um, you know, certified the election um, after an insurrection and then like, 30 minutes later, James Harden was traded to Brooklyn. Like <laughs> I was completely, I, I just, I just gave up on politics. I was like, I don't give a shit. Like, I'm just like thinking about the Nets now. And I was like, Whoa, um, it is actually possible for sports to sort of still like cut through that and uh, divert my attention. Um, which to some extent, I'm like, I don't know if that's necessarily the most flattering thing about me, but also uh sentencing myself to be stuck in just like a misery cycle of of watching cnn and and not making jokes about james harden also sounds pretty shitty so yeah i mean i'm, I'm guessing that you were like me that you were like focused on that and then sort of all of your attention diverted <laughs> to the um, brooklyn circus i guess was was that the same day like honestly it was, this it was honestly like I, I mean, probably 30 minutes apart. It was amazing. Uh, <laughs> it was amazing. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. Um, yeah, I remember, I remember there was basketball games that day and they're like, I was watching it play out. And the guy, like, I was like, do I just ask Tom Thibodeau about what he thinks about the insurrection or do I ask him about a starting lineup? Which way do I go with this in the pregame press conference tonight? Yeah, I'm glad it was baseball's off season because there are some, there's some people who I think their, their voices are important on this stuff, but also it's like, I don't really know how many fans care about what, you know, player X thinks about these, these serious situations. I I think sometimes that is very useful. And then sometimes it's also like, I don't know, I know my opinion, you know, your opinion um, is, is getting a canned quote from, from a player really, um, really a productive use of, of our, of our time on zoom. (laughs) I've been wondering, like, I don't know what the Zoom experience was like for you, but it's it's pretty um, to let everyone in on a secret that's really not that secret since I've talked about it before. Like Nick's media calls on Zoom are not great. Um, <laughs> there's no time for follow ups. You get one question, mm-hmm. maybe two per Zoom media session. It's not conversation. Um, it's uh, I, I think there's a lot lost in this whole process in terms of the stories being written about the Knicks and the way the Knicks players and the coaches are being represented um and just the way that they can be explained compared to relative years and i think the sooner we all get off of zoom the better yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of stories from the 2020 baseball season that were not told will probably not be told um i i think that players should take more initiative to talk to us and i don't say that from like a self-serving point of view but because if if our only access is over zoom and then like texting people who may or may not respond then the majority of the perspective in in baseball writing is going to be from a management point of view it's going to be from people who are able to get league officials club officials and agents on the phone and I don't think that is good for players and yeah like I understand in some smaller markets they everyone is just on unmuted and it's a little bit more natural but like I don't know we have like 40 people on every Yankee zoom so we have to use the raise hand function right um I'm really bad in that (laughs) setting like I I I need the clubhouse because I need to be able to clarify when I um fail to articulate a point like same at one point over the summer, Garrett Cole had just had a baby. And so I said, you know, something like congratulations on the baby. I'm curious how the COVID situation and sort of the adjustment in your home life may have changed your preparation, and your routine or whatever. Yeah. Um, as you know, having a, having a child is a really big change. Um, yeah. And, shit changes real fast for you when that happens. Yeah. And like, and, and his son was born like three days before the season started. And I think he definitely thought that I was asking if, uh, you know, his baby being born uh, made it harder for him to do his job or something like that. And I was like, uh, no, 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 no. I'm just like congratulating <laughs> you on the cute kid and asking if you're get- getting enough sleep, you know? And that's something where in a normal setting, like after the game or the next day, I'd be like, oh, I just wanted to like make clear. I wasn't like, you know, crapping on your baby's existence or anything and so it's just like 
that was the moment where I was like, Zoom is just not for me. I am not like, I'm yeah. not a, like quick enough thinker on my feet to be sort of um, singularly on the spot in this way. Just, <laughs> you know, so like, Ugh. it's funny. I had the almost like a similar experience with Alec Burks, who I think missed a few days in training camp because um, uh, he also, not he. Uh, his wife had a child, um, and he came back and, you know, he like, he signed in the off season. Right. So, uh, you know, he, in a matter of months, he signed with a new team, moved across the country from wherever he was to New York, had a child integrating yourself in the new team. And I like, I had all those things and I was like, you know, how to, how is that whole process? Like, that's a very big question to try to find. Like, that's a big thing to just pile into like one question, basically. Yes. And it's just like, and I, I, I don't, it just seems so robotic on a Zoom. And, you know, he like gave a cliche answer and just went into like, everyone has to deal with obstacles type of thing. And I was just like, basically trying to say like, I mean, congrats on the kid, first of all. <laughs> uh, second of all, that seems like a lot um, to pile into like two months uh, or not even two months. It was like three weeks. Um, how do you deal with all of that? And, uh, the, the funniest thing that I found from this zoom experience, and I don't know if you have the same is like when something happens, like akin to, you know, someone having a child or, uh, you know, maybe even someone's birthday, you, you try to like sneak it in at the beginning of a question. You're like, mm -hmm. Hey, uh, you know, like Tom, happy birthday. Uh, what do you think is wrong with yes. the lottery pick? And it's just yes. so like, it's just so awkward. Yeah. Like. I mean, that's, that's a really good example because if you were just in the locker room, uh, you know, he could, he would be able to like sigh or be like, man, you know, this is, <laughs> this is a lot. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sleeping, whatever. Like he would be able to like sort of be more, I, I think it's easier for people, for players to sort of be more just conversational um, when it's not over Zoom. And the important thing is like, they know these are broadcast. They're, you know, at least for the Yankees, like these are all basically shown on the Yes Network. So like if Garrett Cole, like, you know, puts his hand to his forehead and is like, oh, these diapers, like that's that's not something that stays between he and I, you know, that's, yeah. that's it just it just gets lost in translation. Um, and so that's really the thing. Like I want, I really want to return to a world where people can, just sort of talk like normal people without the self-consciousness of, of knowing that people are immediately going to pick apart um, their sound bites on Twitter or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, like, look, I think one of the long lasting effects of the pandemic and um, kind of just, you know, us, um, most of us, I can't speak for everyone, obviously, as you know, positivity rates can show us. Um, a lot of us have taken the time to just, you know, stay inside as much as you can. And if you're able to, because your job and your financial situation and your family conditions, you, you're trying to do that. Um, and But it's kind of created these artificial and both literal walls around us and the rest of society. And I think that maybe leads to desocialization amongst people and like, I think athletes have also have always been kind of viewed as avatars rather than people a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. And like the more that we do um, media by zoom and aren't able to write about them as people, but only as players or as statistics or as, and I hate the way like people talk about basketball players as assets that you could eventually throw mm -hmm. into a trade. Like yes. that will lead to further kind of um, 
you know, like further enmity on social media towards them as well. And I think that does everyone a disservice. Like we need to humanize people to have everyone remember that we're all just like humans trying to not mess up in life every damn day. Yeah. And I think it's hard because I mean, I'm, I know it's the same in in basketball, but in baseball, like the COVID season was really hard on people. Um, There were, there were a lot of changes. Um, I think a lot of people were scared. Some people were adhering to the protocol very well. Some people were not like, it's a lot of, it, it was, it did take a personal toll or it, it did take a toll on people personally. But if you're, if you're making like 10, $12 million to throw or hit a baseball, you see that like we are having like massive unemployment issues, like basically undoing all of our economic growth over the last 10 years. Are you really going to get on Zoom and be like, Ugh. it's like just not as fun playing baseball for, you know, a prorated salary of like 6 million or whatever. Like, no, you, you're going to sound like an asshole. And like, those concerns are legitimate. Those frustrations are legitimate. No athletes are not suffering the same way that um, a lot of other people are, but like, it's hard to, I think it's impossible for them to articulate the position that they hold and, and the changes that they're going through without really just coming off as assholes. And so they don't. And so I don't think we actually really got like a, an accurate and complete look at the way that the, that the baseball season went for a lot of people because, because the circumstances make it so that they really shouldn't say that shit out loud. Um, understandably. (laughs) Yeah. I think we need to give people room to gripe everyone. Um, Yeah. We all need room to gripe right now and we should just, you know, long therapy session for everyone involved. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. I feel like that's a good place to end it. We've, we've done a lot of talking. Um, I really appreciate you doing this. Yeah. Thanks. This is like the most socialization I will have for the next month. I fantastic. (laughs) Are you going to, I mean, are you going to Florida? TBD. 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 Um, it would have, I understand why the players were opposed to it, but it would have been personally uh, beneficial if they had delayed the season. For a month but tbd okay um is there anything that you want to plug before we get out of here do you want to do you have a zanga or twitter account or any, i don't know instagram account for fisher i really hope no one ever finds my old zangas um i would like to plug double masking not letting your guard down um supporting people in your life getting the vaccine the uh Yankee Stadium will be distributing uh, vaccines to Bronx residents starting on Friday. You will be able to go into the ballpark, which is sort of a nice perk, I think. That's cool. Um, The Bronx obviously particularly has been hit hard. And so please help the people around you um, be be safe, be be protected. And um, yeah, we don't... And the last thing I will plug is that like, we don't have to be as, we don't have to be angry on Twitter all the time. It's, it's okay. <laughs> we don't, we don't have to be this mad, even though the world sucks. That's, that's, that's my final take. That's a perfect place to end it. Uh, <laughs> Lindsay, thank you for doing this. Everyone, thank you for listening. 
Uh, we'll see you guys on the next edition of the Long Twos podcast. Bye.